1: Hello, and welcome to the How To Academy podcast with me, Vas Christadoulou. My guest on this episode, Adrian Hon, is the Edinburgh based game designer responsible for the wildly successful running app Zombies Run. In his new book, You've Been Played, he uses his insider's experience to sound a warning about the perils of gamification. That is to say, attempts by governments, corporations and institutions to introduce video game elements into real-life activities in an effort to control our behaviour. The book came out yesterday and I highly recommend it. You do not need to know or care about video games to read it or, indeed, listen to our interview. Enjoy. So Adrian, you are a game designer And your new book, You've Been Played, is very much not going to make you any friends in the industry. (laughs) Before we talk about why that is, can you start by sketching out how you came to work in games development?
0: Yeah, it's an unusual route. Uh, I originally trained as a neuroscientist and experimental psychologist at university, and um, that's what I got my degree in. And I started a PhD, a DPhil, in neuroscience at Oxford. And uh, I dropped out after one year, as you do, to uh, help uh, a games company get started uh, called Mind Candy. And that was my first job in the games industry. I did it for about two or three years. We made a massive worldwide treasure hunt uh, that took place in the real world and online. And then in 2007, I co-founded Uh, the company I'm at now, Six to Start, uh, with my brother. And um, we made all sorts of unusual games uh, that sort of crossed between the real world and the digital world. And so we did a lot of work for everyone from Disney to the BBC to the British Museum. And finally, uh, in 2012, we sort of got tired of doing that and started making our own games instead of just doing work for hire. And so we made a game called Zombies Run, which basically helps you run in the real world, helps you exercise by making it more exciting and interesting.
1: This concept of helping someone do something in the real world through games is central to You've Been Played. Um, It's a concept called gamification. But as an insider, you've decided to write a book about how dangerous and pernicious gamification is. Uh, can you tell us what the meaning of the word gamification is and what the common techniques of
0: gamification are? Sure. So the definition is pretty simple. It's basically using ideas from game design from video games for non-entertainment purposes. So in practice, what that means is using things like points and badges and levels and you know hit points and missions and applying them to things that aren't currently fun so a good example would be something you see on your fitbit you know trying to encourage you to walk more or in duolingo rewarding you for learning a new language or you know in education apps so it's really just using ideas from game design for non-game purposes
1: And your own app, Zombies Run, is a good example of this because it helps people to get fitter by running. And many of us will have encountered apps promising to train our brains or make us happier or healthier in some way. Why should we be concerned with these seemingly benevolent apps that are promising to help us improve ourselves? So um, most of them,
0: uh, a lot of them, are quite harmless. A lot of them don't really work. (laughs) So... Um, if you don't mind the fact that they don't work, then that's okay. Uh, so, for example, you mentioned brain training apps. Uh, these are very popular, they're used by millions of people. And of course, a lot of people are very excited about the idea of increasing their intelligence, or at least not having it decrease as they get older, by playing MIDI games and things like that. And um, the problem is that there's not a lot of research that shows they work that well and certainly not any better than hobbies like you know learning a foreign language or going out for a walk or dancing but you know there is something about the allure of playing a game that makes you better that they're able to tap into even though the science says uh, maybe it doesn't really work that well. The world of
1: work is rapidly being gamified, with everyone from Amazon staff to programmers being made to, and I use this term loosely, play a competitive (laughs) version of their job. And this actually is quite pernicious, and the history of this sort of technique predates the digital age. Will you give us an overview of how work is being gamified and the consequences of that?
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's useful to sort of go back and look at the history of this. Obviously, workplaces and factories have always had some kind of incentive, you know, and, and reward and punishment over the centuries. So that's that's not new. And we have the idea of Taylorism going back into the previous century and beyond with people's output at factories being measured and people being rewarded for doing more. The difference with gamification is... Basically two things. the first is that it's now possible to monitor people's output and people's work far more uh, accurately or, or f- far more frequently and in real time. So for example Amazon in the past uh, you might be able to count someone's output you know in terms of what they did in the factory at the end of the day or the end of the week whereas Amazon obviously is able to track people down to the second. Really, in terms of how quickly they're packing boxes and how quickly they come back from lunch or from the toilet. And so that stream of data is obviously used by Amazon to judge its workers. But the question for them and for all other employees is how do you tell people that they're meant to work harder, right? And so one way is to just go and send them an email or send them a text message saying, hey, you did. 24 boxes in the last five minutes now we want you to do 25 boxes kind of seems a bit impersonal (laughs) you know seems a little bit uh a little bit on the face you know a bit overt but it turns out it seems that if you go and put these instructions in the form of a game then people at least seem a little bit less willing to uh be outraged by that and Basically, what's happening is that companies have kind of stumbled on the idea that if you wrap your feedback mechanisms for workers in the aesthetics of video games, then it almost makes it go down easier, you know, because everyone now is, you know, plays video games to some extent, right? You might not play a console game but you might play Candy Crush or you might play you know, casual games on your mobile phone. I think everyone kind of understands how leaderboards and achievements and missions work. And so when a company says, hey, um, you know, today your mission is to go and accomplish these tasks and you can get these badges and you can earn these rewards and get these points, everyone kind of understands what that means. They know what that, how that works. And that seems to work better, even though at the end of the day, what they're saying is, Please work harder. (laughs) So the thing is, is that even though some of these games can be quite sophisticated and, and look quite good, you don't really have any choice in whether you play them, which means that they're not really games, are they? You know, games, true games, you should have a choice in playing them at the very least. And so when you're in the workplace, whether it's Amazon or Uber, or, you know, even programmers now are having their work monitored, call center workers, truck drivers, you know, a lot of these places... You have very little choice in whether you play the game or if you do have a choice in whether you play the game, in the case of Amazon, either you can sit there packing boxes with nothing to distract you or you can turn on the game. So it's not that much of a choice.
1: Why is it a problem? I mean, you've, you've made a, almost an advertising pitch there <laughs> for why gamifying a boring job will help alleviate some of the tedium and the employer likes it and the employee can
0: enjoy it a bit more than they otherwise would. Well, I think that's a good question. So if you ask the workers what they think of it, some workers do actually say, you know what, it makes it a little bit less boring. Although other workers say, actually, it makes it even more soul crushing because you kind of realize just how tedious and how repetitive the work is. You know, there was this video that went around uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's quite rare because you're not allowed to take videos inside of Amazon warehouses for obvious reasons. And this person took a video and they were leaving the Amazon warehouse and they said, I'm really going to miss all the Amazon pets I unlocked while, you know, I was working there because, you know, by they were playing a game where if they packed more boxes or they did more work, then they would collect these virtual creatures. And they realize that this is obviously ridiculous because they're not real, you know, it's just a way to kind of guilt you into staying or to working harder. And so on the one hand, they realized, okay, I I sort of care about these pets in a ridiculous way. Uh, In another way, I know that I'm being manipulated, right, by this company. And so it can work, right, these things can work in the short term. But I think that people do realize that they've been manipulated into doing things they maybe wouldn't have done otherwise had the game not existed. I think in the long term, these sorts of interventions, like introducing gamification into a workplace, it doesn't really seem to have a huge effect on people's happiness or output, actually. you know, There's not a lot of studies on this, and they're not very long term. But fundamentally, they don't really change the nature of your work if you get you know what i'm saying you're still packing boxes at the end of the day if you're driving for Uber, even if they give you rewards and badges for driving more you're still you know driving a car and that is the limitation of these kinds of gamification.
1: in the book you also suggest that gamification in the workplace is a tool for making employees accept weaker bonuses, less pay, and so on in favor of ridiculous virtual rewards of the kinds that you just mentioned, like imaginary pets and that kind Mm. of thing. Will you speak a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah. So I think that a lot of this takes place through obfuscating uh, worker compensation. So you can see this uh, particularly strongly in the gig economy. So if you are working for Uber or you know, delivering you know, packages or anything like that. Obviously, you're not usually being paid at hourly rate, as you might be at Amazon, actually, you're being paid by the job. And you're usually not being paid a lot of money either. And so what these apps will often do is say, okay, if you go and accept five missions, you know, five jobs in the next hour, then we will give you a bonus of $4. Or if you do X, and we'll increase your pay by 20 percent for the next three hours and so it gets quite complicated uh if you go onto the forums where these workers gather and, and compare notes you can find these like thousand word long you know guides on like how to optimize your your pay and it just gets really complicated and what it wouldn't matter if people were paid like £100,000 a year, right? And but if you've got a £5 pound bonus for doing this or that, it wouldn't really matter. Uh, no one's going to be that motivated. But if a £5 pound bonus over a day actually makes up a not insignificant proportion of your pay, it kind of does matter whether you complete that mission. And so what happens is that people are kind of being manipulated often to work more or take on jobs they wouldn't have done otherwise because... If you don't do it, then you're not going to be paid properly.
1: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. At the same time as gamification has been arriving in the workplace, it's also spread to video games themselves. It's quite a strange concept to get your head around. Can you tell us a bit about how video games have become gamified and what that means
0: to gamers and the companies that make money from gamers? Yeah, it's a really strange uh, idea because, you know, there's nothing about video games or board games even that requires that they have even points let alone achievements or leaderboards you know you can have a game like chess where you either win or lose you know you don't need to uh, add all this extra stuff or missions on top of it but over the years games have adopted a lot more of these mechanisms that essentially are either there to help users understand their progress in the game which is fine so that's why we have you know progress bars or or missions cuz it is a useful marker of your achievement but also a lot of games are using these things to effectively just get you to play longer and longer and you might say well what's what's wrong with that i mean doesn't everyone just want to play the game longer but again if you look at what players are saying they often feel like they are They have to grind in these games in order to unlock the more uh, fun later parts of the game. So a game might say, "Okay, well, something fun is going to happen, but you're going to have to do this two hours of busy work in order to get there. The reason why the game might do this is to pad out its game length so they can say, hey, we've got 40 hours of gameplay. Isn't that a lot? You know, it's totally worth paying $80 for this 40 hour game. Or in multiplayer games, often they might make you do these bits of busy work so you can essentially be entertainment for other players. (laughs) So, you know, they are using techniques that were originally there for good purposes in order to basically stretch out games and, and get people to entertain each other. It's not the worst thing, although at an extreme, I think it does feed into... Uh, players ending up playing far more than maybe they intended to and i'm very careful about talking about this because people get very upset when you talk about game addiction uh usually what what they say is well you can't get addicted to games because you can't eat a game i mean i think it's a bit of an interesting uh, distinction to make especially since most gamers talk about the fact that a game being addictive is actually a good thing you know but I think that we all, certainly I have a lot of experience in playing games like Civilization or, or things like that. And I start a game at 6pm and I, I can't tear myself away from it until you know I'm finished, even if it's 4am by the time I finish. And that's certainly not something that I intended to do. So games are very powerful you know, in changing your behavior. That's why they're popular. But gamifying games can lead to some pretty negative behavior, I think. And will you just
1: speak to the most controversial edge of this, which is the relationship between gamification of video games, particularly multiplayer video games, and gambling?
0: Yeah, so, you know, there's video game developers and the video game industry doesn't want to have anything to do with gambling, obviously, because we all know gambling is kind of uh, dangerous. But video games are now a very uh, financialized industry, You know, there's millions, uh, billions made in profit. Uh, Everyone always says very proudly how the video game industry is now bigger than Hollywood, bigger than the TV industry put together, you know, the biggest form of entertainment in the world and growing fast, unlike a lot of other industries. And so obviously there's pressure from investors, from owners to try and just make that number go up to make more and more profit. And the way in which you can do that is by adopting ideas from other industries that. Are able to make money like the gambling industry, and so one of the more controversial uh, ways of making money has been through loot boxes. And um, loot boxes are kind of like um, digital treasure chests or digital, you know, football sticker packs, where you buy them for you know not a lot of money, maybe two or three pounds, maybe less than that, and you don't know what's inside, which is interesting. And so you open it up, and there's this fireworks that go off just amazing you know computer effects and you get uh, an assortment of things common items and rare items that might help you in the game or might just make your avatar in the game look cooler and so as you can imagine if you're spending a lot of time in these games uh, it's really important what your character looks like or how they can perform or what weapons they have. And so a lot of people end up buying a lot of these loot boxes. I mean they're big business. They make billions a year. And uh they have been banned in some countries because regulators and politicians think that they are effectively addictive they're preying upon players. I think especially children. We should say. Especially children, especially children. And, you know, there's been a lot of discussion in the UK about banning loot boxes for children or just banning loot boxes full stop, even for adults. So like I say, they've been banned in some countries and then they got reversed and maybe they get banned again. But what's interesting is that players don't really seem to like loot boxes either. Like, you know, if you go and look on forums, if you go and look at the community, uh, no one seems to be very happy about them. Uh, if you look at the response to a government consultation in the UK about loot boxes, people are really not happy about these things. And some people say that they've lost just thousands of pounds. You know, it's really negatively affected their lives. Obviously, like gambling, a lot of people can handle loot boxes fine, but some people, it just ruins their lives. So that's the worst form, I think, you know, of the gamification of video games. There are There are much milder forms of it, but it is a place where... You have something that was just meant to be fun, you know, something that that, uh, was just meant to be an entertainment, turning into something where people can actually lose hundreds, thousands of pounds that they don't have. And it's really sad. Politics has
1: been gamified as well in many countries. And there are several strands to this. The most obvious is in China with the social credit system, but we also see examples of it in democracies. Would you speak a little about the gamification of politics?
0: Yeah, so of course, I think a lot of people have heard of this idea of the Chinese social credit score. And um, I looked into this for the book in a bit of detail. It's true that the Chinese government had a plan to sort of introduce some sort of scoring system uh, and they say this is to basically uh, reinforce trust across the society. And the way to do that is by scoring people. So mm, I'm not sure how, how that makes a lot of sense. But anyway, they've started a number of pilot programs in cities across China. So it's not a national thing yet. Although, given how big Chinese cities are and how many of them there are, it's still affecting tens of millions of people. And... You know, these systems effectively monitor citizens um, through you know, every means available, uh, which means that they're monitored through uh, their, you know, if they run a red light, if they jaywalk, you know, if they return a library book late, you know, if they get punished by police, that sort of thing. And for bad behaviors, they get points deducted, for good behaviors, they get points added and if you have a lot of points, then you get access to privileges like um, better public services, better interest rates on loans, that sort of thing. If you your points go down, then it's possible uh, at a very worst case scenario, you get put onto a national blacklist where you lose access to luxuries like uh, air travel or private schooling or, or that sort of thing. So there are some consequences it's a case where the sort of ambition really exceeds the grasp. <laughs> I think they would like it to work perfectly. And of course, with any kind of technological system, it doesn't really work that well. And even in China, when they've rolled out these systems, people get really unhappy. Um, they're like, well, like I think Big Brother is watching me. I mean, people have even compared these things to Black Mirror because people watch Black Mirror in China as well, of course. But some people in China do like it because they think, hey, Why shouldn't we punish people who behave badly? And frankly, I think if you introduce this sort of thing in the West, probably some people would like it as well. So you know, people are not really that different there. I think what's important with a Chinese social credit score is not so much that it's really working that effectively. It's more that the political will is there and they want to do it and they will probably keep on trying to do it and eventually they might get it working. And that is worrying because even if you could theoretically um, use it in a kind of opt-in way maybe for good um, it's it's a very it's kind of a too powerful tool um, I think for for anyone to use and a lot of the criticism for the Chinese social credit score has become from inside the country by people saying hey who is it who's deciding that it should be minus hundred points for this and plus 50 points for that so that's a problem but you know we do have Credit scores in the West. In fact, um, you know a lot of people in China think that uh, the financial credit scores we have in the West are actually worse <laughs> than the social credit score they have in China. And uh, I think we're all aware um, in the UK, certainly in the US, about these systems that uh, monitor your behaviour and um, control the kind of loans you get or the kinds of mortgages you get, and in some cases, you know, your employment. And they take in probably more data than the Chinese social credit call system. Now, of course, they're not run by the government, but it's not like you really have any choice in, uh, for, for the most part in whether you take part in these things. Similarly, for health insurance, I used to have private health insurance in the UK uh, through Vitality uh, and through Prudential, and they had a very interesting, you know, gamified system of points where if I went to the gym you know, I get 20 points. If I went and ordered some vegetables from Ocado, I get five points. It's all opt-in. I didn't have to do it. But if I got enough points, I would save quite a lot of money. I mean, I'd save hundreds of pounds, you know, maybe more per year. And when you have those kinds of incentives, can you really say that it's opt-in? I mean, not really. <laughs> um, You know, if if you're not earning that much money, then you don't really have that much choice. And as more and more people in the UK are buying private health insurance well is that part of our lives not also being gamified so you know as the state in the west is kind of retreating in a lot of areas a lot of the places where private industry is growing those places are using gamification to incentivize to manipulate people's behavior
1: hey there Another political aspect of all of this is the gamification of terrorism and the gamification of conspiracies. Can you take us through those?
0: Yeah, so, um, you know, when we say the gamification of terrorism, obviously no one has designed, you know, uh, a, a terrorism game to make people do more terrorism, at the same time, I think we sort of have an idea of that because this term was invented by, by a scholar who's kind of interested in, in um, what leads people to terrorism. And a few years ago, you know, we had a series of mass shootings by young men and uh, often involving the online 4chan or 8chan forum. And they would live stream their shootings, um, using like a head mounted camera and so it looks a little bit like some kinds of um you know combat video games and people watching these streams and commenting on them would say oh wow he's gone this high score and i want to beat that high score now this is absolutely not a case where you can say oh well violent video games are making people c- kill each other it's more that um Terrorists and far-right groups are co-opting the language and the aesthetics of video games, which are, of course, incredibly popular, incredibly well-known, to encourage people, young men, to commit acts of terror. And, you know, if you went back 200 years ago, they'd be doing something else. But it's because uh, video games are the dominant form of culture for a generation that... You have this kind of feedback cycle where even if something is not actually a video game or even gamified, people choose they kind of feel compelled to view the world as a game. Um, and sometimes that's completely harmless and it, it's just fun, and sometimes it gets a little bit strange. So you know in conspiracy theories, for example, you know if you're trying to talk to someone online on Twitter and trying to argue with them, they, they might go and call you an NPC you know or a bot. And, you know, an NPC is a non-player character. So it's a computer-controlled character in a video game. And so when they go and insult you by calling you an NPC, they're saying, well, you, you're just spouting um, the same lines as everyone else's. Or maybe they, they really do think that you're not actually real. And so that's just a case where people kind of can't help but see the world uh, as a game. And I think, you know, in social media... Um That can lead to some um pretty concerning outcomes where um you know people are just saying things to get a rise to sort of get their likes count up to get their retweets up you know on reddit to go and you know get their karma up and it doesn't really help that a lot of social media platforms have an element of gamification built in of course you know you have uh you know, Facebook or Twitter having these very visible markers of a post popularity and people obviously um, if they say something extreme one day and they see it get a lot of engagement and see the likes go high and, you know, they get a feeling of achievement. They're like, well, I should just keep on doing that. I've been rewarded for doing that by getting this response and um, the platform promotes your content. So that's another case where no one's Deliberately designed it as a game, but it has these elements of gamification in it that lead to results that can be quite, um, yeah, quite worrying.
1: There are also um, very explicit parallels between the way that people who believe in QAnon uh, investigate QAnon and further the conspiracy online and the kinds of much friendlier and more fun um, online games that you used to enjoy as a student and even design. Um, Can you speak a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, so um, I think a lot of people are aware about QAnon, this sort of very strange, very um, popular, far-right conspiracy. Um, and, you know, when it started getting really popular, and especially as it started intersecting with, uh, you know, real-world politics, you know, uh, Pizzagate, um, and, uh, of course, you know, the the um, insurrection in the U.S., um, one of the things I noticed was how so many QAnon followers would say, about their journey into the conspiracy theory, uh, I've done my research. You should do your research, right? It's always something about research. I've done my research, and I thought, I, you know, why? Why are you saying this? You know, what, what is this about research? What what they mean by research is they type Q and A into Google. That's research, right? Um, <laughs> and then I, I sort of realized what's happening here is that they love the feeling of discovery of agency. And I don't mean that in a kind of, I'm not trying to belittle anyone here. I think it's exciting to feel like you've stumbled on some kind of secret and that rather than just simply reading a book or watching, you know, Fox news or whatever, you are typing in things into a browser and you're searching for things and you're uncovering videos and you're uncovering you a know, forum post telling you about this conspiracy theory, it actually feels more satisfying because it feels like you are doing something, right? It's not being spoon-fed to you. And so when they say, I've done my research, they're like, oh, I've gone down the rabbit hole. You know, I've I followed the breadcrumbs. Now, of course, in reality, it's, it's not like they've gone to the library and they've been sort of looking up, you know, <laughs> um, hundreds of books. They are following a trail that has been kind of deliberately left there, right? In the sense that if you type in QAnon, you're going to get videos about QAnon, you know, being real. Um, But it's a very powerful uh, motivator. And it is really similar, I think, to uh, a type of game that I used to play and make called alternate reality games. And these are games which are quite different to normal video games. Uh, Instead of playing on a console or on a phone or a PC, These are games that kind of spread out across the internet and into the real world. So an alternate reality game might start with uh, a trailer for a movie with a strange URL or a strange phone number. And you call up the phone number and it's got a voicemail message. And the voicemail is telling you to you know, go to this your social media page and the social media page tells you to go to this website and the website tells you to go to this real world location where an actor will meet you of package. Right. And so it's all a little bit shady. It's all a bit exciting. You're not really sure what to expect. It's a, a bit, it's a lot more work, you know, than playing a normal video game because you can't just sit on your sofa and, and sort of wait for things to happen, but it's also kind of much more thrilling. And I think, What I realized is that even though researching, quote-unquote, QAnon and playing an ARG are, you know, in some ways a lot more difficult than consuming a TV show or reading a book, that they feel much more satisfying. They have a sense of community about them because they're so complicated that you have to go and talk to other players to progress. And they're designed in a way, if they're designed well, That even if you are not like an expert, you know, you can still feel helpful by coming up with theories about like, oh, I just saw this pattern of birds in this photo and it looks like something outside of Hillary Clinton's house. You know, what do you think of that? Right. I mean, that's just, you know, no one can disprove that. It's just nonsense. But people still feel like they're doing something useful. And to sort of be sympathetic to people, people really want to be useful right? You know, we don't want to just sit at home and, you know, work, you know, a low wage job and not feel valued. People want to feel valued in their lives. And what these conspiracies are doing with this sort of gamified interaction is helping people get that sense of value in a kind of twisted way from a community. And so if we're wondering, oh, why is it that people are believing this nonsense about 5G towers and about, you know, children trafficking in furniture well it's because they are getting something from that and it's not the theory because the theory is ridiculous it's the sense of community and the sense of purpose and importance and um, you know if you aren't sort of used to playing games or if you haven't sort of looked at ARGs or online games you might think it's kind of weird that people will be able to get that sense of purpose from those games but absolutely they can and um, we need to be very aware of that.
1: Is gamification inevitably going to get worse as new technologies like VR and augmented reality become
0: widely adopted? Um, yes, I think. <laughs> you know, I don't. I, I don't think there's much doubt in that. You know, gamification has grown massively over the last fifteen years because uh, we have smartphones with us all the time, and because they're networked. Uh, with a lot of sensors and because so much of our lives are now mediated through the internet. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily a good thing. It just means there's a lot more surface area for applications to gamify what we do. And companies like Facebook and Apple and Google are pouring literally tens of billions of dollars a year into the development of virtual reality and augmented reality uh, headsets. So augmented reality, are, you know, would be things like smart glasses where you can, you know, uh, wear them and you can enhance your vision uh, all day. And of course, those companies are extremely anxious to be there when these technologies get adopted because they they think they'll be the next big thing after smartphones. You know, if you think smartphones are bad because you're looking, checking your phone every five minutes and just imagine having your smartphone in your face, then you're always, you know, online. And of course, if you're always online, then you can always be gamified and, you know, that can be done maybe in a good way. Maybe the council will come up with some, you know, game for collecting litter, you know, maybe, maybe there'll be games that will help you learn a sport or games that help you, you know, do your chores more. Or maybe there'll be games that um, you know encourage you to work in a different way or work longer and harder at your warehouse job. In fact, I'm pretty sure that will happen. So whether you like gamification or not, I don't think there's any question that it's going to become far more pervasive in the next 10 or 20 years. What can we do to push back against this? You know, as individuals, I think it's difficult because you don't really have much choice to use these sorts of technologies. If you want to communicate your friends or family, then you kind of have to have a smartphone. You have to use a computer. These days, you know, if you want to monitor your health, then something like an Apple watch is really useful, even if it is extremely gamified. You can, in a lot of cases, turn off gamification. It's usually on by default, but you can turn that off. Uh, I think it will be useful if people realize that these games are not necessarily for their benefit or they don't necessarily actually work, right? They don't actually make you necessarily fitter or they don't make you smarter. Um, So just being a little bit more skeptical of their claims. I think as a society, you know, there are things we can do to try and regulate and to try and monitor what's going on. So, for example, in the US, you know, they are, I think the FTC is looking at regulating the gamification of finance. So they think that apps like Robinhood are maybe using gamification elements to encourage people to trade irresponsibly, to effectively gamble on stock markets and they're saying well maybe we should just ban that (laughs) you know it just doesn't seem very useful so that's a thing that governments can choose to do and governments can choose to go and ban loot boxes you know the issue is that the field is moving so quickly that obviously governments as ever find it difficult to keep up but they have to because these are systems are really sophisticated and they're being used to manipulate behavior on a mass scale
1: Well, Adrian, thank you for that portrait of our dystopian present. (laughs) Thank (laughs) you. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you. This episode of the podcast starred Adrian Hon and was produced and presented by me, Vas Christodoulou. I produced this series with Esme Bright and our editor is John Daughty. If this episode has put its hooks into you, then do go back and listen to last week's interview with Bloomberg's Mark Bergen on the chaotic rise of YouTube. We'll be back with more next week. Until then, thanks for listening.